This is Primal Screen, a weekly radio show airing Monday evenings on Triple R. Primal Screen is about movies, from the ones on the big screen to the ones you stream. Hope you enjoy the podcast version and feel free to get in touch via the Primal Screen Facebook page or the Triple R website. to Primal Screen, a show and podcast all about screen culture from movies on the big screen to whatever you're streaming. We're broadcasting tonight from the Triple R studios on the stolen lands of the Kulin Nation. This is and always will be Aboriginal land. I'm your host, Flick Ford, and on tonight's show, we're talking all about books on film. So I've got three different writers joining me tonight from three different states. First up, author of Book of the Band, Devilish Movies, Dastardly Senses and the Scenes That Made Australia Sweat, Simon Murado. Welcome to Primal Screen, Simon. Thank you for having me. Um, I should also mention that you are the general manager of RTR, which is um, basically the, the triple R of Perth. <laughs> That's funny because we think of you guys as the uh, RTRFM. <laughs> <laughs> but, but, yeah, it's, it's, it's great to be part and, and to be on another community radio station, but I think we've got a good uh, symbiosis here. We do indeed. And you also are one of the one half of Movie Squad, which is a fantastic um, movie podcast, uh, which is available you know, to listen to wherever um, you can get it. And you also appear on the Friday breakfast for RTR. Every time I'm in Perth, I do tune in for that one. Oh, that's great. Um, we also have writer, podcaster, cultural critic and author of Castmates, Australian Actors in Hollywood and at Home, Sam Tufford-Moore. Hello. Hi, thanks for having me. It's my pleasure. And last but certainly not least, uh, fellow Primal Screener and editor of a new collection of writing on James Whale's Bride of Frankenstein, it's Emma Westwood. Hey, Emma. Hi, Flick. And and uh, it features the book features a lot of Primal Screeners, actually. It does. So, yeah. <laughs> <laughs> it's like a school role of Primal Screeners. <laughs> exactly. Exactly. Well, it is. It is such an honour to have um, all of you joining me tonight. Uh, I think writing about films is really one of the main ways in which ideas and contradictions and themes and cultural, political, social, historical trends in, in screen culture are really discussed and, and unpacked. And I think that it, it always, for me, allows this much more deeper and more nuanced understanding um, of films, filmmakers, uh, and the industry as well, I think that often gets forgotten. So it's always a pleasure having more movie books existing. Um, and I love that each of the books that we'll be discussing tonight uh, touches upon a different aspect of screen culture, 
We have the industry and censors with Book of the Band. Uh, we have actors and performers in Castmates. And we finish up the, with the collection of writing about film itself um, with Bride of Frankenstein. Uh, so I hope you enjoy our discussion. You are listening to Primal Screen on Triple R. You're listening to Primal Screen on Triple R with Simon Morado. Emma Westwood, Sam Toford Moore, and myself, Flick Ford. It is a PAX little primal screen house tonight and an interstate one too. Tonight we're talking about books on film and I'm joined by three authors to talk about their writing on film. So first up, Book of the Band, Devilish Movies, Disasterly Senses and the Scenes That Made Australia Sweat by Sam Amorado. What a title, firstly. <laughs> <laughs> Real tongue twister. I um, want people to trip over it as their That's my <laughs> main intention in writing a book. Well, uh, yeah, that, that has been unlocked. Um, Simon, you are a very familiar voice, as we said, for our West Coast listeners um, with RTR and also Movie Squad. Um, but what actually prompted you to write a book about the history of censorship practices in Australia? Well, I think I was always intrigued by the stories, you know, the anecdotes and the histories that you would read about censorship of film in Australia. And then there's kind of this weird gap where it just sort of stops. The literature sort of stops. It becomes something that's discussed, you know, in the realm of academia. Um, But as a film critic, and I started working as a film critic about 15 years ago, I was uncovering or, you know, being party to these stories of films that were coming to Australia in censored forms and no one was really kicking up a, up a fuss about them or I just wanted to learn more. And so after, you know, 10 years working in the industry, I thought, well, someone someone should write this story, um, if only to collect all the gross bits and bobs that were getting deleted. And, <laughs> and the first version of this book was basically like a, like a little encyclopedia, like a, like a disgusting <laughs> little dictionary <laughs> of deleted scenes. Um, but when I actually started digging in, you know, in earnest, uh, it revealed like this different story, you know, there's the, the, the fun and gratuitous nature of the violence and the sex and all the, you know, bits and bobs that have been cut, but it started revealing like a story about national identity mm. and how Australians identify ourselves and, and the stories we tell ourselves about ourselves. Mm. And so the book ended up being something that I felt quite necessary, if I can be arrogant enough to say that, because I think it speaks to the illusion we have of the Australian identity. And I guess I tell the story of that through the history of film censorship. Well, let's dig into that because I I used to teach censorship at uh, Melbourne Uni for a few semesters and I remember one of the things that stood out to me was that so many students, Australian students, thought that we didn't censor our films very much at all, which is um, a really interesting misconception. Can you maybe for listeners just talk through... um, you know, how the classification system actually works here in Australia? Well, the way it works is that anything that we see in theatres, anything that is theoretically released onto, you know, DVD or Blu-ray, that's a, that's a, a bygone era now, but anything that would be uh, released onto a streaming service has to be classified first by our classification board. And they'll watch a film or they'll watch a TV series and they'll look for basically the classifiable elements. So coarse language, violence, sex, themes, drug use, et cetera. And then they'll judge the impact of each of those elements. And that'll neatly, again, in theory, fit it into a, a classification. Okay, that's PG. Families can see that. Or it's MA. If you're under the age of 15, you have to see it with your parent or an adult guardian. 
or it's R and you have to be over the age of 18. But as, as you kind of suggested that your students weren't aware of, there is this, this netherworld, right, <laughs> of, a, of, of the refused classification. And that is effectively the classification that means you're banned. But how can you be banned? All that they're doing is refusing you classification. And it just so happens to be illegal to screen things that haven't been classified. So that's kind of the workaround, like the, the semantic workaround we have in Australian culture. We don't ban things. We just refuse their classification. <laughs> but in, in turn, ban them by yes, the, exactly. the fact, yeah. yeah. <laughs> It's so interesting hearing you talk about your little dictionary of um, of smart, basically, or, <laughs> or, or films that got banned for very different reasons. Um, it must have been fascinating as as a film critic, but also just as a as a an audience member to go through that because you're right. There has not been, I don't know of any other books that have in so much detail gone through this. And I want to make sure that listeners are aware. This is a very lively book. It's quite a fun, (laughs) fun book to read. Um, Very easy book to read. Um, But yeah, were there some surprises that you found along the way? Well, yeah, I think you point to, to the main issue I had was it's very fun, quote unquote, to write a book about like, the scene in Dawn of the Dead where the zombie's head gets chopped off by the helicopter blade, you know, <laughs> like like uh, like articulating all those moments that were deleted and you kind of look back and go, oh, that's funny. Back in, you know, 1970-whatever or 1980, they thought that was going to, you know, corrupt the morals of the populace. But what ultimately I found was, you know, there was a three-minute section of the core monologue from Persona that was cut out. And there were all these other moments that were deleted or resequenced. And there was this, you know, again, the story being told, this tapestry of a lot of queer content getting yeah. deleted or banned. Actually, let's um, let's get into that because yeah, you sure. actually you speak with primal fellow primal screener Dr. Stuart Richards uh, in your book about the censorship of queer content, um, and I think that's something that people do not realise. Um, perhaps the the people who are programming for the MQFF mm. realise this, but it is um, there is much heavier censorship of queer content, which is says so much about Australian culture, I think. Um, what impacts do you think that this has on queer culture? Because it is current. It's still, there is still a tremendous amount of censorship. Absolutely. And I think I, I spoke to filmmaker Travis Matthews, who uh, you may remember about 10 years ago, his film I Want Your Love was banned uh, in Australia. And I think what happens is effectively the classification board, they are in theory trying to classify or, you know, they don't censor anymore these days, but they're trying to set um, an understanding of this is what the community standards are, right? This is what is acceptable to the Australian average person. And you get a lot of complainers, a lot of wowsers, usually from the the right or religious groups. And primarily they complain about LGBTQIA content. And so when you hear regular stories about, you know, uh, gay films being censored or banned, what it does is, as Travis Matthews, the filmmaker, put it, is it makes that world, the queer community, seem scary. It seems like something that is threatening, that needs to be monitored and censored. And Yes, we're just talking about films in this instance, but what it does is it creates this sort of this cultural stigma. I mean, that cultural stigma already exists, but uh, what I found in, in my over the years of censorship is these special interest groups often use the arguments against film as a way to earn cultural capital. 
And to, it's sort of the gateway drug into creating wowzers out of parents. Mm. And, and that's the scary thing for young queer people. You know, their folks have been fed these lies that this community is terrifying because, oh, gosh, they're trying to release this smut into cinemas. It's basically pornography. Um, but there, as, as I point out in the book, there are a lot of heterosexual analogues for those films that are, are passing without much mm. complaint. Hi, Simon. It's um, Emma here butting in. Um, I just wanted to ask you something, actually. Does what what you've seen or what you've uh, annotated as being cut across the generations tell about a story about Australia itself at particular times, would you say? Yeah, it really does. But I think, you know, it's it's a recurring story. Mm. Uh, I liked, I, I wish I could say that it's an evolving story, but I think back Damn. to, yeah, I know. Well, <laughs> I was just, hoping I'd hear that, but. No, because it, it, look, you go all the way back to the story of the Kelly gang, right? 1906, first feature film, it's Australian. And that kind of helps form the Australian national identity. Bush ranging films, there's suddenly a massive craze. People are flocking to the cinemas, but of course, censorship comes in. Uh, and and starts banning bush ranging films and what i love about i mean look i hate that story but what i love about the story in the context of my book is that australians we convince ourselves we're all bush rangers right we, we're not offended by anything we love speaking truth to power uh you know we don't take authority seriously but we're not bush rangers we're cops and that's what the the next 130 years of film censorship kind of reveals uh, as 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 depressing as that may sound. Actually, the film that came sprung to my mind, and you do talk about this in Book of the Band, uh, was The Trouble with Being Born, which was one of my favourite films uh, of, of the MIF. I think it was two, oh, two years 2020. ago. 2020. 2020, okay. <laughs> time, is a, time is a circle. But, yeah, <laughs> yeah, three years ago, in fact. So uh, I just thought that was such an interesting case study to completely want to censor a film because – you know, this idea of, oh, it might, it, it just um, took the context of nudity um, completely out of context. And it also just prevents us from, cha- you know, dealing with these more challenging topics of how do you deal with the sexuality of, of, of a child? How do you deal with um, AI being used in different ways? Like, it, it was such a fascinating film that really was saying mo- much more about uh, class dynamic than it was about, you know, being a something to be looked at I don't think anyone I can't imagine anyone getting off on that film <laughs> no totally and and the argument that someone could get off on it could be applied to any yeah. piece of content or media ever um and that's why classification is actually a good thing right because films uh you know yes they're a mass medium but not every film is for every person so it's good to have these little guardrails up like parental guidance I think is a core reason for that but in the case of The Trouble With Being Born, what's important to remember is it wasn't, it wasn't censored and it wasn't banned, but Myth pulled the film mm. when it started getting some controversy and not even getting some controversy. Basically, The Age um, interviewed a few people, um, basically child psychologists, to say like, hey, this movie sounds pretty gnarly. Like, what do you think about it? Yeah. And once they reached out to Myth for comment, Myth pulled the film. Mm. And so in the last 20 years, there's not exactly heaps of examples of movies being censored by the board. You know, they, they're not the censorship board anymore. They're the classification board. But you have these 80 years of history, mm. this chilling effect where uh, distributors are self-censoring. Renfield was mm. censored when it came to Australia. Lady Bird was censored when it came to Australia. Indeed, The Trouble With Being Born was pulled from myth 
because a couple of people thought it was challenging material, which it yeah. is. And hadn't actually watched the whole film, interestingly No, enough. one had read a description of it and mm. one had turned it off halfway through. And I think what we I think is important also, like you've already touched on, you know, acknowledge the other side of, of censorship, which is classification. And um, a while back I, I had an opportunity to speak with the um, CEO, co-founder and executive director of Consent Labs. I'm not sure if you're aware of them. Um, yeah, they, so they have set up the um, the Classify Consent campaign, which is basically this idea um, of having before a film to, to say, look, there's going to be scenes of um, – non-consensual sexual acts and I thought that was such an interesting use of content we might refer to it as a content warning and there seems to be much better literacy nowadays um, people even putting that on social media posts and and images and I thought that's Mm. such a more nuanced thing than to say this contains nudity or this contains sex scenes absolutely and I think I speak about that a little bit in the book as well. And as a broadcaster, you know, I I run a radio station here, content warnings, trigger warnings. I think they're so essential um, when dealing with heady subject matter. And I often, to be honest with you, give them before even talking about my book. Um, But I know I'm dancing around a lot because we're going to air. (laughs) (laughs) Um, But one of the things that, you know, concerns me about the Consent Labs proposal is that, you know, for all the pros and cons, at least the current classifiable elements of, you know, violence, sex scenes, they're not value judgments. Mm. And I think, you know, once we get into the realm of, you know, this film features um, scenes that, that are non-consensual or whatever it might be, that's, a, that's such an interesting shift in how we demarcate what a film contains. If it's done as a content warning or a trigger warning, I think that's perfectly fine, but I get a bit scared of the government or even this body that's theoretically uh, separate from government getting their hands on uh, value judgments, even specific morality questions, even though, you know, consent is a literal, you know, uh, thing. Uh, it's it's one of those moments where it's like, that sounds like a great idea, but I've got a book of great ideas being used for very nefarious purposes. Mm. Yeah, and that is the really tricky thing sometimes to know what the next step should be um, and how to how to kind of move forward. Um, Simon, if listeners want to get a hold of your book, what's the best way for them to do that? Yeah, look, they can find it in, in select uh, independent booksellers or they can go to bookoftheband.com and buy it there. Fantastic. Uh, Sam... Let's talk about castmates, Australian actors in Hollywood and at home. Um, I I love that there is I, – I was struggling to find a book that was similar to this and I don't know that one exists. So I was like – I wondered firstly, um, you start the book, Castmates, with this wonderful anecdote about attending Russell Crowe's Sotheby's uh, auction, The Art of Divorce, uh, back in 2018 um, at Carriage Works. Now, I understand that this was actually the starting point for your book. Um, firstly, tell us about this exhibit, this, this uh, auction. It sounds wild. Yeah, so back in 2018, Rusty was selling off his memorabilia cheekily maybe to pay for his divorce or, you know, make up some cash that might have been missing. Um, and, yeah, I went down, it's down at Carriage Works in Sydney and had a look around and was kind of amazed by, I think he put a lot of thought and effort into the curation. Like he did a lot of publicity for it and I think he cared a lot about it. And he sort of provided for me a model of 
writing about actors through looking at their films and also their lives because he was pretty chronological and he included something from pretty much every film he'd ever been in because he basically stole something from every film that he'd ever been in and put it on sale in this exhibition. So very Russell. Yes. Um, and, yeah, just a great starting point. I also love that you open with with an actor who, you know, technically is a Kiwi. He's not he's, he's not even Australian, Sam. Exactly. And he's, and he's lied a couple of times. He's been caught out lying about um, getting knocked back for Australian citizenship. The... Uh, the immigration department actually issued a uh, rejection of his claims that he'd been knocked back in the press. So, um, but he's on track apparently with the with the new agreements coming in. I absolutely love thinking about the the relationship that Rusty has with Australian media. I feel like when he does something good, he's got a great performance. It's Aussie actor, and then as soon as he's throwing phones, it's kind of straight into New Zealand actor Russell Crowe. Um, but no, he's a fantastic starting point and such a like a bizarre way to to start this uh, exploration into these different actors that you profile. Um, And I I thought, um, you know, there is such a long history of Australian actors heading over to Hollywood um, to make it big. And that's a big thing of what your film, your book, sorry, deals with, this kind of shift overseas and particularly to Hollywood. Um, Do you think that this is the tall poppy syndrome kind of, prompting that move or do you think it's simply that there's just more work over there? Yeah, well, I guess the book like goes back to the start of the 20th century. So it maps out different periods and, you know, part of it was um, the work opportunities weren't here in the same way, um, particularly in that early part, certainly in the mid-century in Australia, there was basically no film work kind of happening. So um, the middle figure who I'd profile, Peter Finch, sort of um, he actually had huge ambitions for the theatre in Australia. He wanted to um, start a national theatre and was working towards that but then got a lucky break and ended up in, in London and then later Hollywood. So it's, it is about these, you know, migration patterns, but I think a lot of it isn't necessarily any cultural cringe or tall poppy syndrome. It really just is market conditions and work opportunities, mm. you know, that, that engender you know, either people staying here or that kind of brain drain where they go go overseas for, for greener pastures. I can't help but feel like we're shifting back to, or these, these actors are often returning back to Australia. I, a few uh, months ago I spoke with Simon Baker, who of course stars alongside Russell Crowe in LA Confidential. He moved over there with, with his partner at the time to kind of like everyone else did. And, and now you see him in so many more Australian productions and you kind of see this returning back, um, which is kind of an interesting trend as well of sorts. Um, but one of the actors that you profile is um, David Gopalil and um, you talk about Nicholas Rogue, the, the director of Walkabout, um, which, you know, we should mention is Gopalil's screen debut at, what, 17, 16, 17? He was so young. Was, yeah, 15 or 16. Yeah. When they came. yeah. Um, and he had to, the Rogue had to negotiate with the Aboriginal welfare authorities in Darwin for Gopalil to get permission to be in the film. Um, I was just wondering, in, in kind of doing all this research into um, Gopalil's Korea, um, were there shifts in your understanding of First Nations people and communities' relationship to cinema and the film industry here in Australia? Yeah, definitely. I mean, that little uh, anecdote that you've just brought up there was a huge research breakthrough. There was actually this um, cachet of letters uh, in the National Archives 
that did explicitly detail um, the back and forth between Walkabout uh, production manager in Australia and the, essentially the Northern Territory government and this kind of, you know, having to go through an institution and the sort of conditions that um, Goldpalil sort of had to work through through his career um, and the sort of dry spells that he went through, um, the incredible groundbreaking work that he did. I mean, part mm. of that chapter and Goldpalil's life is looking at um, he nearly made his directorial debut in the early 80s, um, which would have been hugely, hugely consequential and, um, you know, a, a huge moment for the cinema in Australia. Um, but it all fell over because of uh, tax breaks not getting passed. And wow. so, that, you know, it is, again, it kind of comes back to, I think it's a book a lot about material conditions and how they impact um, the individual. And certainly First Nations filmmakers have had, you know, the system against them for a really long time. One of the other subjects in the Goldpool chapter is um, Brian Siren, and I go into his history of trying to get up the first sort of um, fictional feature film from a First Nations um, film director and just the kind of walls that he hit with um, the Australian Film Commission at the time. Was it actually, just to to jump in, was it difficult bringing together these different threads? Because I feel like there's, the book is so dense with detail, but you take us on on this story and it uh, again is is really a pleasurable read and so much information. How was it like sort of threading through all these different histories and, and anecdotes? Yeah, it's interesting. I mean, maybe I bit off more than I could chew in terms of the time frame. <laughs> it's like going from 1930 in Hollywood up until today was a long time. It definitely is a product of uh, the COVID years. I was, you know, sitting at home and doing not much else but uh, ordering rare books from eBay and watching movies. <laughs> so um, it was a pleasure to put through. But, yeah, like the castmates in the title is all of the subjects in the book connect with each other in one way or another and some are Direct Connections, Peter Finch and Errol Flynn star in a terrible movie together from 1955. Nicole and um, Goldpalil obviously star together in Australia. But then the other kind of satellite people are these smaller profiles of um, of uh, actors that they, they co-starred in movies with. Um, it's Emma here, Sam. I was just wondering, did you happen to come across Coral Brown at all in your... Um in your journeys she wasn't she might have been out of the scope because she didn't go to Hollywood she went to the UK (laughs) yeah she was out of my scope I do know of her but yeah she's not in not in castmates doesn't make an appearance yeah yeah I'm thinking because um she's she's an interesting character though because she was um she ended up marrying Vincent Price Mm. and she's a girl from Footscray I love that that we've got this (laughs) Melbourne girl from Footscray who ends up marrying Vincent Price yeah uh, her biography's (laughs) great because it's called this effing lady because apparently she was a (laughs) massive potty mouth and I love the idea that this uh, she also was very diva-esque and that she was this lady of the stage and film who um, had a really foul mouth they met they met during the um, the the uh, making of Theatre of Blood um, yeah, right. Yeah. I mean, I do end up, I, there's a little, I touch on a little, there were a number of, um, I only touch briefly on the silent era because obviously part of this book is about uh, the conception of Australian actors in America and you sort of, and how Americans related to them too. And so you had to have been able to hear them <laughs> to really make that connection back then. But um, certainly there were a number of um, Australian women in the early part of the 20th century who ended up going over to Hollywood, obviously. But um, I found Judith, three women. Judith Anderson. Judith Anderson. Yeah, yeah. Um, and I found three women who all starred in Laurel and Hardy movies. Oh, um, Two amazing. from Melbourne and one from Sydney. So, 
Um, I don't know what it was about Australian women and Laurel and Hardy, but <laughs> they, like ended up in their movies. But that's fantastic because even in um in mine, uh, Bride of Frankenstein, um, Op Heggie was yeah. Did you so you yeah. came across him for your book yeah. as well? Yeah. yeah. So he's um and you're talking that's getting you know pretty close to the silent era. Um, yeah, it's yeah. amazing to think that that was a big journey at that time, a big leap of faith to mm. take, um, both personally and professionally at that point in time. And another castmate that you do discuss is uh, Nicole Kidman, our Nicole. Uh, <laughs> I remember actually growing up in the mid-80s watching, you know, BMX Bandits on VHS, you know, the whole Tom and Nicole. Um, was such, it was such household names. And I actually thought that they were part of my family, like my immediate family, like distant relatives that we never spoke to for some reason because that's what you think of as a child. And I thought, what are your thoughts? in having looked through all these different actors and their backstories, what are your thoughts on the parasocial connections that actors, um, the audiences often form with actors, but actors also somehow give out? Yeah, sure. I mean, definitely that's there with Nicole. Um, and I write a little bit about kind of the queer appreciation of Nicole. I've got friends who wear Nicole T-shirts to gay dance parties. <laughs> um, a friend had a thousand and one nights of Nicole uh, birthday party where everyone had to come up as different Nicole characters. <laughs> you know, <laughs> that's that's definitely in there. I mean, interestingly, even going back, like there's a darker story to that kind of parasocial relationship where part of the book is obviously about Errol Flynn and I'm getting in a little bit of trouble at the moment in the press uh, for maybe trying to cancel Errol Flynn. I don't think you can really cancel the dead. Um, and certainly if you went through his list of crimes, you would find uh, he's beyond canceling <laughs> the next level. Um, but, you know, he was put on trial for statutory rape in the 1940s and I actually found this um, Daily Telegraph in Sydney article uh he famously got off um his career sort of you know went a bit berserk after that but um there were these vox populi of uh you know young women in the street in sydney in the 40s and one of them was like oh he couldn't have been guilty you know like he couldn't have been guilty because he plays the hero on screen there's no way he could be a villain in real life so that mm. kind of parasocial relationship with stars mm. even back then was having this mm. kind of almost toxic effect and we and we see it still today um yeah. which is very interesting <laughs> what um what do you think uh you know have you i, I suppose we're talking about the the Aussie actors who've made it in Hollywood, there'd be so many others that go over there dreaming big and, and don't make it. What do you think it says about Australia's national identity for those actors that do seem to stick and to make it? Um, yeah, I think that sort of was actually the starting position of the book was looking at these four figures as as cultural icons and what they sort of mean to us. And, and sounds, you know, like I'm sure there's similarities with Simon's book with mine in terms of thinking about nationhood and how mm. film and culture um, and in my case, you know, movie stars, these emblems of, of who we are help form nationhood in good ways and in bad ways. I mean, certainly the chapter on Errol Flynn is very much about what we let ourselves get away with and what we let him get away with. Um, but then Golpalil's kind of breakthrough is so essential to who we are now. Mm. And then Nicole continues to represent us till today. And how can listeners get a hold of Castmates? Uh, it's in all good bookstores and it's out through <laughs> 
New South Wales Publishing. You're listening to Primal Screen on Triple R with Simon Morado, Emma Westwood, Sam Typhoid Moore, and myself, Flick Ford. On tonight's show, we've been spotlighting books about film. And just prior, you heard about Sam's book, Castmates, which profiles actors such as Nicole Kidman, David Galopal, and uh, Russell Crowe. And we opened tonight's show uh, talking about uh, censorship with Simon Morado's book, Book of the Band. And for our third and final book, we return to censorship in a way. Uh, James Whale's 1935 film, Bride of Frankenstein, which is the focus of a collection of writing by of the same name that has been curated and edited by Emma Westwood. Uh, the film itself also uh, was the subject of censorship. Uh, Emma, firstly, congratulations on this wonderful collection. Thanks, Flick. <laughs> I appreciate that. So tell us a bit about why Bride of Frankenstein was censored by Hayes Code, correct? Yeah, yeah. Uh, Bride was, was one of the first films that actually got severely cut under the Hayes Code. So you kind of talk about, you'll hear pre-code uh, mentioned a lot in terms of Hollywood and um, pre-code is actually the period between about 31 and 34 and that's uh when the the Hayes Code had actually been written then it was Hollywood was they were deeming it to be getting a little debauched in terms with of what was being depicted on screen and uh this uh morality code essentially came into play um but it wasn't really strictly enforced until around 1935. So Bride being the example of where this enforcement came into play um, and being a big film, it was a big film, a very anticipated film on its release. So mm. it was a good film to make an example of, well, let's say. Yeah, and wasn't it mm. to do with the dialogue? Because there's a bit of dialogue in which um, they combine, like, I think it was like they, were, the, uh, they compare Frankenstein's effort to the work of God and that was what upset them oh, and, yeah, and maybe yeah. some was... naked breasts or something was that the <laughs> yeah yeah you pretty much got it yeah. in two there it was um although that permeated a lot of cuts throughout the film um and a lot of argy-bargy between the studio and the filmmakers and everything which we actually um uh published letters in this book so um in John Tolson's essay uh he he went into the archives and so you get to actually read the letters between the censors and Universal and Whale, um, James Whale being the, the director. But, um, yeah, it's it, it really distills down to the fact that anything that was seen as sexually explicit, so Elsa Lanchester's um, bosom in her scenes as uh, Mary Shelley, and then... Um, Anything that was seen as blasphemous, so a religious, um, you know, man being posited as God, obviously, mm. um, there were a lot of things there. But strangely, what really flew under the radar was all the, the queer themes. So, <laughs> and it's a very, very queer film. I mean, it is um, James Whale astoundingly at that time was um, an out gay man in Hollywood. Uh, so that was quite unusual at that time. But I, I think he came with an outsider status that let him sort of ride with that mm. reputation, let's say, because um, he came from the Blacklands, you know, the black country of, of um, 
uh, of the UK. He was very working class background. Uh, you imagine this dank, you know, area of industrial area of the UK and then coming into this hot, sunny desert land of LA, Hollywood. Mm. Um, it was for him, he was very much, a, a you know, a stranger in a new land and, and I think they very much treated him as an outsider. But, mm. the, but the Bride of Frankenstein had a largely UK uh, cast and... Um, and makers, so it, it it has a very British sensibility about it. When you especially see my favourite queer character, which is Doctor Pretorius, played by Ernest Thesiger, who was who has. If you look up online, you'll see his cross stitch videos. They're fabulous. <laughs> he was a very good cross stitcher. Yeah. <laughs> And we should also mention that your book features a foreword by Sarah Karloff, who is the daughter of Boris Karloff, who, of course, plays Frankenstein's um, Frankenstein's monster. Um, how did that come about? How did you get her to do that? I went to karloff.com and sent a message via the inquiry <laughs> contact form, and she came back. Bless her. She came back directly. She's really the custodian She's the self-appointed, I guess, but, you know, who else is going to do it? Custodian of her father's legacy, mm. and she's an only child. Um, Boris was, I think she was born just after Bride of Frankenstein. So Boris was about uh, 51 when she was born. He wasn't young at all. So if he was alive now, he'd be 135. Oh, something. Well, that's one way of and, putting it. <laughs> yeah. And so to, just to put it in perspective, and Sarah's 80, 86, I believe she is now. And um, she's still going strong and she's still talking about her father, how many times she's told the same stories. I have no idea, but she's just as enthusiastic and so proud of what he's done. She said he never would speak about his work um, at home. He's just, uh, he was, you know, work was work and home life was home life. But he, um, by the time he got to Frankenstein, not Bride of Frankenstein, but Frankenstein, it was his 81st movie. So he was seen as being an overnight sensation, but uh, he said it took him 81 films (laughs) to become... An overnight <laughs> sensation. Lovely, lovely man by all accounts. Very interesting background too. I really would encourage people to look into that, which is something that we don't do in the book. We kind of really focus in on the bride and the themes mm. of the bride. But he was, you know, he, he his grand his grandparents were um, Indian nationals, and um, and growing up in the UK at that time as sort of you know not the whitest of men was a a very difficult thing for him mm. and his family. It's so interesting hearing those layers of people being outside of because I feel like that is one of the core strengths of Bride of Frankenstein still being relevant today. Oh, sorry, I just tapped the mic. Because that is still a very – people are – and all the different writers you speak to, let's let's get into that actually because you noted that this book is not the final word on the film. Of course it cannot be. Um, and it doesn't cover, of course, all the elements of, of the film. Um, but it does delve into really specific themes and experiences and expertise. So let's talk about – some of the um, amazing writers that you feature in this collection. Um, I, we did mention before, there's quite a few primal screen favourites in here. So can you go through <laughs> a bit are. of a taster? 
Okay, so the primal script, let me uh, have to look at my contents to make sure I don't miss any of them. <laughs> okay, so the primal screeners are... We can talk about Chris, We can talk about all the... All we'll the talk ones. about all of them, but let's just tick off the locals. So we've got uh, Sally Christie. So Sally's written about the gothic feminine in the book. Um have you had Dan Golding on the show? Before? Well, I haven't actually, but I do know Dan very well from Melbourne Uni days. So yeah, I think you give need him a to shout have out. Dan, on, Dan <laughs> on, the, on the show, he's written about um, Franz Waxman because um, what many people would not realise is that Bride of Frankenstein was one of the first films, Hollywood films, that was actually scored. So at that time, before then, they would just put blanket um, classical music tracks over the films. But this one had its own specific score written. Um, Eloise Ross about early sound, around sound Mm. and dialogue, uh, sound effects and uh, mixing, all that sort of stuff. Uh, Stephen A. Russell uh, has gone and written amazing, amazing chapter. It is incredible. They're all incredible. Um, But uh, Stephen's very comprehensive around queer themes. Uh, Lee Gambit. Gambit. So Lee's written a piece around... um, Drawing basically thematic threads between Bride of Frankenstein and then James Whale's next film, which was also a genre film, Showboat, (laughs) a musical, uh, and how they do explore very, very similar themes, actually, in a very different way. We should also Um, mention on our special of books about film, we should mention that Lee does have a book out currently, Life Being on, Like Being on Mars, An Oral History of Carrie, um, yes. which is yes. a, uh, a brilliant read, fantastic cover we were discussing off air. Um, so you can check that out as well. Yeah. And that book, so Lee's book, just uh, to chime in there is, as he says, an oral history. So it's just jam-packed with interviews with people who were involved with the making of Carrie. And it's a really beautiful book. It's a very hefty book. (laughs) But um, similarly to what everyone said here, from all good bookstores and all good outlets. Um, So, yeah. So then Cerise Howard, um, I just have to give Cerise a plug. Or Andrew Nettie. I don't think Andrew's been on Primal Screen, but he's written about The Many Brides of Frankenstein and actually talked about films that have taken the idea of The Bride of Frankenstein as a central theme and played it out in their films. Um, But uh, Cerise's film, uh, uh, chapter is around, really quite out there, uh, around a Czechoslovakian film called um, Happy End, which plays in reverse. So what happens is um, it's about a man who um, basically at the start, which is the end, he gets his head cut off with a guillotine, but because it's the end, which is the start, it's his head getting connected back to his body and then we find out why he um, he has ended up in that particular position, which is because he dismantled his wife. But in playing it backwards, he puts her back together to get again. So it's sort of like this idea of him recreating her. So Cerise talks about that. It was it's quite out there as a as an angle, but surprisingly works very well and also in terms of editing and this idea of cutting and um and uh, just film language through editing and so forth so they're they're quite different I mean they're the local authors there but the others um 
I've got a, a handful of authors from the UK and the US as well who chimed in and uh, and brought their own points of view. But basically, I just, in terms of the um, the themes it's, and what you said, Flick, it's not a be all end all final word. I don't think you could ever have that on this film. And the idea was there have been such wonderful writings about this film, including a lovely monograph um, by BFI Classics by um, Alberto Manguel. Um, Same series that has Salman Rushdie writing uh, a book on The Wizard of Oz, mind you, which I think is fantastic. Um, And I thought, I just have to do something different. So that's why uh, it was this idea of creating a monograph, but bringing in all these different perspectives and literally stitching them together to make this strange monster and <laughs> and keeping the voices as an editor keeping the voices of those people I didn't want to I didn't want to homogenize it it had to be um it, it, you had to leap into every chapter and feel like you were sitting down with that person and talking about the the film with them now I know Emma that when you first were going to be doing this book, Bride of Frankenstein, you did see yourself as doing this as a solo project um, and then realising the enormity, you you decided to call upon um, a very wide range of international and domestic writers. So what what do you think – I mean, firstly, Bride of Frankenstein, I know you're a horror fan, but I suppose for listeners just to understand the significance of Bride of Frankenstein, how would you sum up um, how it's able to have both – still relevance in 2023, but also just across different cultures and different different sort of perspectives of, you know, effects and, and that sort of thing. How, how would you sum it up? Yeah, it's kind of strangely The Bride of Frankenstein in its beauty and perfectness, it's just such a gorgeous film, um, has sort of spurned a whole... Uh, a whole type of film that I really don't like. That's the amazing thing. Um, As in the sequel, you know, the blockbuster sequel, really. And I'm not a fan of that. I'm not a fan of sequels. What about about Paddington 2? Paddington 2 is arguably a better film than Paddington 1. Godfather 2, Paddington 2, Mad Max 2. There you go. (laughs) I could go on. But sequels in general, you know, you kind of go, "Ah." often the third, we've done this before, we've gone into, we've played around with uh, the third of horror genres, and especially into terms of um, franchises, film franchises, horror is uh, very much um, the genre that seems to have, uh, lends itself to sequels. Yeah, well, Um, I suppose that sequels also speak to usually, uh, you know, a place of financial insecurity in the industry, don't they, where let's just trot that out. It was successful the first time, so how many more can we get out? I I do love in your book there's a little anecdote about when they realised, oh, hang on, we killed off the monster. We're going to have to (laughs) create a... How, how can well, he come back? <laughs> well, they beautiful, really. Um, they they were able to because in the first film they didn't um, they didn't take all the narrative threads from Mary Shelley's book, so they were able to re uh, to to revisit the book and um, bring out this concept of the bride mm. and 
flesh that out a little bit more. So there was a lot of material that was still sort of um, ripe for, you know, soil to be tilled as such. Yes. Um, yeah, but they, but the film itself, um, yeah, is just one that has, I think through iconography and the grounds that it broke at the time has meant that it's kept a level of fame and notoriety right continuously and also means and this plays a lot into it as well um we've been able to get good prints of it mm. uh it hasn't disappeared uh as a, a film so we can revisit it and see it in a really nice form other than some sort of crappy i don't know youtube transfer <laughs> um, for listeners who want to get their hands on a copy of bride of frankenstein where do they go emma uh, like the other guys, um, <laughs> all good bookstores uh, uh, and the online, usual online outlets. I, I really encourage people to go into their bookstores. Yeah. Though, and I'll, I'll give a little shout out to Cracked and Spineless in Hobart, who I know bought a lot of copies of the book. And, uh, <laughs> and I don't know anyone there, so I what didn't. A, what uh, a perfect. What a perfect pairing, Cracked and Spineless and The Bride of Frankenstein. <laughs> it's a great name for a bookstore too. So <laughs> it I think really they is. deserve kudos for that. Absolutely. You've been listening to Primal Screen on Triple R with Simon Morado, Emma Westwood, Sam Typhoid-Moore and myself, Flick Ford. On tonight's show, we did a special spotlight on books about film with Book of the Band by Simon Morado. Castmates by Sam Twayford Moore and Bride of Frankenstein, edited and curated by Emma Westwood. All three books are available online and at select bookstores. Uh, you can just head to our socials for the full details. And you can, of course, listen back to tonight's episode on the Triple R website, rrr.org.au, or you can subscribe to the Primal Screen podcast. Simon, Sam, Emma, thank you so much for joining me tonight. Thank, thank you. you. Thanks, Flick. Thanks for listening to Primal Screen, a weekly radio show airing Monday evenings on Triple R. Hope you've enjoyed the podcast version and feel free to get in touch via the Primal Screen Facebook page or the Triple R website. 